Today we will continue with the Dahukando Bama Sutta or the parable of the log, which I started to talk about last week. In this sutta, the Buddha mentioned eight obstacles which prevent a log floating down in the river Ganges uh, from uh, reaching the ocean. I will summarize these eight obstacles briefly. The log, which is floating in the river Ganges, will not reach the ocean if it gets caught on the near bank, or if it gets caught on the far bank, or if it gets submerged under the water, or if it lands on a small island, or if it is caught by human beings, or if it is caught by non-human beings, or if it gets into a whirlpool, or if it becomes rotten. Last week I explained what it means to get caught on the near and far bank. The near bank refers to the six internal sense bases, or we can call them the six sense doors. They are the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind. And the, six, and the far bank, that refers to the six external sense bases, or the six sense objects. And they are visible forms, sounds, smells, tastes, tangible objects, and mind objects. So the Buddha said, whenever we are not mindful of the six sense doors or the six sense objects, then we are caught by them, which means that we are caught on either the near or the far bank of the river. The next point that the Buddha mentioned was to be submerged under the water. What does this refer to? As one of the monks listening to this discourse couldn't under understand what the Buddha was referring to with this, he asked him to explain a bit further. To be submerged under the water means attachment, clinging, desire, lust, in all its different forms. If we are attached to material things, to persons, as well as if, um, being attached to our views, opinions, beliefs, etc., then we will not be able to reach the ocean. Attachment, clinging, can range from very gross forms of attachment to material possessions to very subtle forms of clinging to things how they should be or how they should happen. In the following little story, the consequences of attachment, of rather gross attachment, to a material thing um, is illustrated 
in an uh, obvious way. Venerable Tissa uh, lived at the time of the Buddha. And one day, his sister offered a new robe to him, which she had made herself. And she used a very good quality material for this robe. At that time, it was rather difficult for the monks to get robes. And most of the time, they had to collect pieces of cloth thrown away on rubbish heaps or at the side of the road or charnel grounds. So when Venerable Dissa got this very good quality robe offered by his sister, he got immediately very attached to it. Holding it in his hands, he couldn't let go of it anymore. At that time, for some unknown reasons, Venerable Tissa fell sick and died. And because he was so much attached to his robe offered by his sister, he, he was reborn as a peta in the form of a flea on that very robe that was offered to him. So when the other monks came to collect Venerable Tissa's belongings, they saw this strange peta flea running around like mad on this robe. And not knowing who or what it was, they went to the Buddha and explained him what they had seen. And the Buddha only told them not to touch Venerable Tissa's belongings for seven days to leave them there as they were in his room. After seven days had passed, the monks went back to the room. And at that time, they couldn't see this strange peta flea anymore. Again, they went to the Buddha and told him that. And it was only then that the Buddha explained them that this strange being was none other than the late Venerable Tissa, um, who had been born as that Peta flea because of his um, big attachment to his robe. But then the Buddha explained further and said that now he had passed away from that Peta flea existence and that he had actually reborn in the Deva realm. Attachment, greed, clinging, craving, lust, all these um, qualities, they can be collectively put under the term loba. Loba is one of the three root evils. The other two are dosa, aversion, ill will, anger, and moha, Ignorance, not knowing, delusion. Katrin Felder, who is a Swiss meditation teacher, she calls these three root evils le trio infernal. That's actually French, 
But in Switzerland, all the children, um, when they go to school, they learn French as the first foreign language, as it is one of the four national languages that we have in Switzerland. And as you might guess, in English, it's the infernal trial. Loba dosa moha, the infernal trial. The characteristic of loba in all its form is always grasping an object, holding on to an object. And its function is sticking. In the scriptures, the sticky nature is explained with the example of a piece of meat sticky, sticking to a hot pan, to a hot iron. Another way of explaining this sticky nature of loba um, was used by a Sri Lankan meditation teacher. A yogi who had been meditating with this Sri Lankan meditation master told and showed me how this master tried to explain him this sticky na nature of loba. Apparently, he held his two hands together like this and then with very lively movements tried uh, showed him that it was impossible to separate the two hands apparently going and apparently this went on for quite some time <laughs> until the nun who had to act as a translator said Bante, I think that's enough Anyway, this yogi never forgot how stickiness or the, uh, the function of loba was stickiness and how that was explained to him. And as he explained it in quite the same manner to me, it also made a lasting impression on my mind. So this sticky nature or the function of loba to stick firmly to the object. Um, that's also so wonderfully illustrated in the story of the monkey trap. In, in some place, places in Asia, they use this special trap to catch monkeys. For this, an empty coconut is tied with a string to a pole or to a tree and then they put some sweets on the bottom of the coconut and cover it up and the cover has a small opening which is just big enough for a monkey to put in his open hand but it's not big enough to withdraw a closed hand, a fist. So when the monkey gets the smell of the sweet, then he goes there, puts his hand into the open opening, grasps the sweets, and then wants to pull out his hand. But now his fist is too big 
um, he cannot pull it out again. So the monkey is only trapped by his desire to get the sweet by holding on firmly to the sweet, by sticking closely to the sweet. Could he let go of the sweet? He would be free. So when we are caught by clinging, attachment, desire, the Buddha said that we are submerged under the water. And being submerged under the water, then we will not be carried along by the current of the river and will not be able to reach the ocean. When we are filled with attachment and desire, our minds are no longer pure or clear. And therefore, the mind gets defiled or we get stuck. And so then we are no longer flowing with the current of right understanding. And therefore, we cannot reach the ocean of Nibbana. This clinging or attachment, desire, is what the Buddha referred to as the second noble truth, the truth of the cause of suffering. All our various kinds of suffering or unsatisfactoriness are ultimately caused by our attachment, uh, craving, clinging. This is a very strong force. It's actually this force that keeps us going in samsara, the endless circle of birth and death. The force of attachment, clinging, is manifested in all different domains. We are attached to people and other living beings, like pets. We are also attached to our material possessions, like our car, our cities, maybe our clothes, maybe even our flowers and trees in the garden. And we are further attached to food. I think I don't need to go further into this. <laughs> Who hasn't been craving for this or that kind of food, even here on this retreat? Let me tell you just one little example. Once we had two Korean monks meditating at our forest center in Burma. A Korean woman living in Yangon came to visit our center one day and knowing that we had two Korean monks meditating, she brought along the ingredients to make a real Korean soup. She gave everything to Mimi, my Burmese friend, and explained her exactly how to prepare this Korean soup. So then the following day, Mimi prepared the soup and put it on the table where these two monks, these Korean monks, were eating. And apparently, they emptied the whole pot. Mimi was watching them uh, as they were eating. 
after a couple of days, Jamie Sayado came out to the Forest Center to do the interviews with the foreigners. And Mimi and myself, we always were listening, sitting in and listening to these interviews. And so then, when one of these two Korean monks was reporting about his experience, he mentioned that two days ago, um, they got this real Korean soup. And he said, as it was so delicious, he lost all his mindfulness. <laughs> he said he couldn't note anymore, and he had to get a second helping and a third helping. <clears throat> After the two Korean monks uh, had finished their interview and had left the room, Jamie Saedo asked Mimi how it came that they had this real Korean soup. And so Mimi explained how it came about. And then, to our big surprise, Sayedo told Mimi that she should again prepare the soup for these two Korean monks. We are not only attached to persons, to material things, to food, but also to our ideas or views, opinions, and beliefs. Attachment to our well-cherished beliefs and opinions is even more difficult to detect, let alone to uproot. Because we very strongly identify our sense of self or our sense of I, ego, with our views, with our ideas. On the base of that, that's what we think we are, or then we think that's me. Uh, we derive our sense of self, of identifying ourselves with certain beliefs or views. But of course, this leads not only to all different kinds of sufferings, but it's also a kind of mental rigidity. And so when things are not the way we want them to have or we suppose them to be, then we are in trouble. The third noble truth the truth of the cessation of suffering is a clear statement that there actually exists a state without clinging or attachment. When attachment and the resulting suffering ceases, then there is peace, happiness, tranquility, or contentment. And in Buddhism, the state in which all suffering ceases to exist, this is called Nibbana. It's the extinction of all these mental states which cause discontentment, misery, suffering, unsatisfactoriness. In other words, it's a state where all 
craving has ceased to exist, or where all our thirst um, has been stilled, and the mind is at complete ease. When I talked about the second noble truth, the cause of suffering, um, I said it's this attachment, this clinging, craving, which is the cause of our unsatisfactoriness. And in Pali, this is called tanha, which actually or literally means thirst. Because our insatiable thirst, our constant craving, we are bound up with all kinds of suffering all the time. It is like drinking salt water to quench our thirst. But the more with the more we drink, the thirstier we get. The Buddha and many of his disciples throughout the ages, until the present day, have experienced for themselves the cessation of suffering, Nibbana. As Nibbana is beyond the reach of concepts, it's difficult to describe in conventional terms. As our language is bound to concepts, it's never possible to give an adequate description of what Nibbana actually is or feels like. Therefore, it's easier to say what it is not. And therefore, we have the expressions like the unconditioned, the unformed, the unbound, or the deathless. Positive words to describe uh, Nibbana are peace, happiness, supreme bliss, liberation, emancipation, freedom. But when we use these terms, we have to be careful not to confuse them with the peace and happiness that we derive on the condition of worldly experiences. The peace or happiness of Nibbana is not dependent on any outer conditions or circumstances. And this is actually the real freedom because then we are free from having to ever create new conditions or circumstances which could serve as the foundation for our peace and happiness. The peace, happiness and contentment of Nibbana comes from within. It comes from a completely purified um, mind and heart where all the defilements have been eradicated. Nibbana is reached with the extinction of loba, dosa, moha. It means when the infernal trial has been uh, completely defeated. Although the majority of living beings has not experienced Nibbana for themselves, it doesn't mean that Nibbana doesn't exist. It only means that their minds 
has not been trained enough in order to experience it for themselves. Trying to describe Nibbana, what Nibbana is in conventional terms, is a futile endeavor. And still, whole books have been filled. It is like trying to explain the taste of, for example, Swiss cheese to a Burmese person who has never seen, let alone tasted, Swiss cheese. I have done that several times, trying to describe what real Swiss cheese, like Gruyere, looks like and tastes like to the helpers working in our center in Burma. During the years of working in the dining hall, the Burmese helpers, they have come to realize that we Westerners have different eating habits. Um, the fact that we do not eat rice three times a day for breakfast, for lunch and for dinner seems very odd to them. <laughs> so when I try to explain them that a meal can consist of a piece of bread, some cheese, some cucumbers, tomatoes, they look at me with square eyes, not being able to um, to understand how one can survive with this. <laughs> so of course, all my attempts of trying to describe what Swiss cheese is, what it tastes like, uh, they failed. Only when my parents came to visit me in Burma, bringing some Swiss cheese, um, they could taste it. And as the taste is so strange, so unfamiliar to the Burmese people, most of them didn't like it. <laughs> In the same way, it's with Nibbana. Until and unless we have experienced it for ourselves, we will never know what it actually tastes like or how it feels like. But once we could taste it, then we know for sure. Then we have no more doubts. And contrary to Swiss cheese, the taste of Nibbana is thought to be supreme by every living being. These realized beings who have experienced Nibbana for themselves, they assure us that this state is real and that it actually is within the reach of all of us. The only trouble is that they, can, they, they cannot bring us to that state by their power. Even the omniscient Buddha couldn't bring us uh, to the state of Nibbana, but all he could do is to show a way of how to get there. It is up to us to make an effort and to put his advice into practice. One verse in the Dhammapada uh, expresses this. 
You yourself must make the effort. The Buddhas only point the way. Nibbana, or ultimate peace, the highest happiness, freedom, emancipation, or whatever word we want to use to describe the highest goal of the Buddha's teaching, comes about with the removal of craving, or wanting, desire, greed, attachment. Then, when we have removed it, then we are no longer submerged under the water, and so the current of the stream will take us all the way to the ocean. Now let's go to the next point that the Buddha pointed out. This is to land on a small island. And with this, the Buddha referred to pride. When we are overcome by pride, then we are stuck in an unwholesome mental state that prevents us from realizing the truth. As the log lands on the small island in the middle of the river, it is no longer flowing with the current of the river, and so it will not reach the ocean. And if a person is filled with pride and conceit, she or he is unable to see things as they really are, because pride and conceit, they pervert and distort our way of perceiving things. The story of Queen Kema is a good and famous example for this. At least, it's a famous story in Burma. <coughs> Kema was the chief queen of King Bimbisara, and she was a woman that was enthralled by her beauty. She thought that no other woman in the whole kingdom could match her beauty. And she strongly resisted to go and see the Buddha because she feared a comment on her pride of being so beautiful. King Bimbisara, her husband, was a disciple of the Buddha and uh, he was already a stream enter having reached the first stage of enlightenment. So he tried different ways of making Queen Kema to go and see the Buddha or to listen to a discourse. But all his attempts failed until finally he got poems made describing the beauty of the Veluvana monastery where the Buddha was residing. And as Queen Kema was interested in everything that was beautiful, um, she got very curious to go and see the monastery. So one day in the morning, knowing that the Buddha was going on arms rounds in the morning, she went to the Velovana monastery with some of her attendants. So she walked through the monastery compound enjoying the beautiful flowers, the lovely sounds of the birds, the calmness 
and the stillness of the place. And she also peered into the Buddha's kuti, still assuming that he was out on arms round. But as she peered inside, she saw the Buddha sitting there, and next to him was a very young and beautiful woman fanning the Buddha. Queen Kema was amazed. She had never seen such a beautiful woman who was even more beautiful than a deva. In great amazement, she stood there looking at this young woman. And then the Buddha, with his omniscient power, he made this young beautiful woman um, become older. So her skin started to wrinkle, her teeth became yellow and then fell out one by one. Her hair started to become gray and then white. And finally, her body started to become bent. When the old uh, woman wanted to leave, she had to grab hold of a stick. But after having taken just a few steps, she fell down on the ground and was dead. Queen Kema was shocked. After a little while, the Buddha addressed her, saying, My beautiful Kema, just as the body of this old woman, so is the nature of your body. There is nothing beautiful in it. It's disgusting. It's just full of impurities. There is nothing to admire or to hang on to. Let go. Let go of it. And you will reach the peaceful abode of Nibbana. Queen Kema listened attentively to the Buddha's words and gradually her mind calmed down. By the end of the discourse, she became a stream enterer. So after that, she asked the Buddha for forgiveness for not wanting to see him, for resisting so strongly to see him. Then she went back to the palace went straight to her husband, King Bimbisara, and asked him for permission to ordain as a bhikkhuni. And King Bimbisara was very delighted that his wife, the queen, had uh, realized the Dhamma, and so very happily he gave her permission to ordain. It is said that after uh, she got ordained. One night, as she was watching the blowing out of her oil lamp, a very strong feeling of samvega, spiritual urgency, arose in her, and that culminated in um, complete enlightenment. She became an arahant. Not long after that, one day, when she was sitting outside under a tree, meditating, she was approached by Mara, the tempter, and he was calling her to come and have fun with him. But Venerable Kema replied, 
that she had no more desire for the pleasure of the senses. And so Mara realized that she was an arahant, so he quietly left. And it is also said that at the later stage, she answered the questions of the king of Kosala. And after that, the king of Kosala went to the Buddha, asked him the same questions. And the Buddha answered them exactly in the same way as Venerable Kema did. And so the king of Kosala reported this to the Buddha. And he praised her of being a very wise bhikkhuni. And he actually conferred the title foremost in wisdom to Venerable Kema. So she was the female counterpart of Venerable Shariputta, who was foremost in wisdom among the monks. Queen Kema was extremely um, proud of her beauty. It was only after her pride was broken by the skillful means of the Buddha that she was able to see reality as it really is. And this led her to her enlightenment. There were two other uh, famous bhikkhunis at the time of the Buddha who also were very much infatuated with their beauty when they were still laywomen. Actually, both of them, they were prostitutes. Ambapali, she was a high-class prostitute for the Lichavi princes. The other woman was Vimala, who was just an ordinary prostitute following the footsteps of her mother. Later, after um, Vimala had ordained as a nun and become enlightened, she said, I was very proud of my beauty. Despisingly, I looked down on other women. I thought that nobody could match my lovely figure. I beautified and adorned this body of mine. Then I stood at my door to catch my prey in the snare I spread out. When I stripped for them, I was the woman of their dreams. In her case, it was Venerable Mogalana who pointed out her blindness of reality. He told her straight in her face that this body was nothing but a smelly and stinking heap of bones and flesh and pus and blood and urine and excrements, and that there was nothing to hold on to, or there was nothing that could be regarded as beautiful or fragrant. Vimala understood her vanity and realized that everything was just decaying incessantly. So it was only after realizing the insubstantiality of their beauty and the resulting pride that they could let go of it and 
finally become nuns. All of them, Queen Kema, Ambapali, and Vimala, they became fully enlightened and could help many other women in their quest uh, for liberation. Pride <clears throat> is a mental state, and in Pali it is called mana. It is self-exaltation or the desire to advertise oneself. The Pali word for this is ketu kamiata, and it actually means the desire to fly the banner. A proud or conceited person has to show off, has to uh, boast or to brag. In the Abhidhamma, where the characteristic function, manifestation and proximate cause of pride are explained, in the end it says, it should be regarded as madness. Pride can arise on the independence on one's virtues, knowledge, rank, status, wealth, education, fitness, or beauty. In all these cases, one wants to let other people know that one is standing out in one way or another in that particular case. And this self-exalting attitude is not a wholesome mental factor, but it's actually unwholesome and leads to one's own detriment. Pride can be compared to rust. Rust arises on a piece of iron. And if rust arises on a piece of iron, it starts to eat the iron bar from which it has arisen. And so then the iron bar, which is slowly eaten up by the rust, is also slowly falling apart and being destroyed. And when the iron bar has been destroyed by the rust, then it is of no more use any longer. And it is the same with pride. When pride arises in our minds, the pride eats up our minds. And so a healthy and wholesome mind will be destroyed. Or one of my teachers, Sayadaw Uindaka, once said that a proud person is like a thorn uh, in the eye. Those who possess mana, pride, or conceit tend to be haughty and mean, always turning up their nose on others. When they excel others in status or wealth or education, knowledge, then they think highly of themselves and look down upon others. When they are equal to others, equal in wealth or education or beauty, then they think others are not different from me 
I too have such things. And still they are puffed up with pride. When their position or their wealth, their knowledge are lower or inferior to others, they may reason thus. I do not need their higher position or what should I do with all their wealth? I am happy to live in my little shed. But although they are, have less or are inferior, they are still um, conceited or proud of that. So therefore, pride and conceit, they can take the form of superiority complex or equality complex or inferiority complex. In the scriptures we have three kinds of pride mentioned separately and they are jati mana, dana mana and panya mana. Jati mana means the pride that arises depending on one's birth. At the Buddha's time the caste system prevailed in India with the Brahmin's caste at the top of it. The Brahmins, they were so conceited and proud of their extraordinary and extraordinary birth and purity of their birth that they claimed that they were not born from the womb of a woman but that they were born from the mouth of the Brahma. Dana mana, here dana is spelled D-H-A-N-A, not like generosity dana, D-A-N-A. So dana mana is the conceit that arises depending on one's um, wealth of being rich. Being rich, being affluent, can easily become the cause for pride and conceit to arise because we can afford to buy many different things or because we can afford to go for a holiday to a far away and exotic destination. We easily fall prey to this desire to fly the banner. We want to advertise ourselves. We want to let the others know. And panya mana is the pride that arises depending on our knowledge or education. It can manifest in very gross forms of conceit. For example, when we have to let know, let to know everybody that we just passed our exam at Oxford's, Oxford University, getting a PhD. But it also can manifest on much more subtle levels. For example, when we just have to add a little remark to another person's answer, showing that we know better. So with this desire to let fly the banner, the eye or the ego draws the attention onto itself 
bidding the world for consent, for recognition. It's like, look, I am here, I am better than you. Or the second version goes, look, I am here, I am equal to you. And the third version goes, look, I am here, I am a good for nothing. Or, look, poor me. Pride, in all its different manifestations, is actually providing an underlying support system for our ego illusion. And the I, the self, the ego, wants and needs to be fed for its survival all the time. So the self wants to be confirmed time and again, and therefore it relies on the help of conceit to confirm its imaginary existence. This mental state of pride, conceit, haughtiness is listed among the unwholesome factors. And as long as it is present, a person cannot get fully enlightened. Actually, mana, pride, conceit, is one of the last defilements to be uprooted. It is said that even an anagami, a person who has reached the third stage of enlightenment, has not yet uprooted mana. Only with the attainment of full enlightenment, of becoming an arahant, is mana uh, completely uprooted. But nevertheless, we still st should strive to weaken and subdue this unwholesome mental factor. We should try not to be a thorn in the eyes of others. The opposite of pride and conceit is humility and modesty. With humility or modesty, there is no need to fly the banner, or there is no need for self-advertisement, no need for self-exaltation. In a truly modest and humble person, there is no need to inflate the I or the ego. A person who was incredibly humble and modest was Patrul Rinpoche. He lived in Tibet in the 19th century and he was said to be an extremely learned monk and he always kept a very low and humble profile. On one occasion, a large number of students started to gather around him, longing for somewhere quieter he gave them the slip and he went to another valley altogether. There, being disguised as an old man, um, he took up residence with a family and was actually working as the servant of the old lady who was the mother of the household. So he did all different kinds of jobs for her 
even emptying the night pot. His students started to search for Patrul Rinpoche and everywhere they went they asked people, have you seen Patrul Rinpoche? When they finally got to that house, they asked if they had seen Patrul Rinpoche. And so this old lady said, no, no, we haven't seen any Lama or so. All we have here is this old man clad in rags who is working as my servant. And the students, it didn't take them long to guess who this old man was. And after seeing him, realizing that it was Patrul Rinpoche, they explained the old lady who had been serving her. And apparently she was so ashamed and embarrassed that she simply took to her heels and fled. Humility and modesty are qualities that adorn a truly realized being. And this, as we know from our own experience, it is definitely nicer and much more agreeable to be with a humble and modest person rather than being together with a proud and conceited person. Mahagandayon Sayado, who lived in the past century in Upper Burma, he was also a very learned and famous monk. And he said that one should uproot conceit and be as humble as the doormat stepped on with dirty feet. In order to abandon pride, the Buddha advised to meditate on the impermanent nature of all phenomena. This is called anicca nupasana, the contemplation on impermanence. And as we know, impermanence is the first of the three general characteristics. The Buddha said, sabe sankara anicca, and this means all conditioned things are impermanent. All conditioned things are constantly changing, not being the same. They are not permanent, not lasting. On a gross level, we can see this change in the different seasons. Summer changes into fall, fall then changes to winter winter to spring, and then again summer. Or in Asia, it's only three seasons. The rainy season, the monsoon, changes to the cool season, which then changes to the hot season, and then again the rainy season. Or it's the change from day to night, from hot to cold, from being beautiful to becoming ugly, or the change from a cherry blossom to the cherry fruit, or the change from a caterpillar 
to a butterfly. When we look at our lives, there is also change. Change from being a baby to a young children, then becoming a teenager, a young adult, a middle-aged person, an old person, and a dying person. Or the change from being wealthy and rich to becoming poor, the change from being beautiful to becoming ugly. Although being alive, being rich, or being healthy, we never know when we will die, become poor, or fall sick. These changes can occur any time. Although, for example, we know that we will have to die one day, still the sudden death of a person near to us comes somewhat unexpected. Even persons that are healthy and strong today may be dead by tomorrow. We never know for sure. That's why the Buddha said, today the effort must be made. Tomorrow death may come. Who knows? Or a Tibetan saying goes as follows, tomorrow or the next life, which comes first, we never know. And this happened to one of my aunts. She was in her late 50s, being quite healthy and strong. But then one day, several years ago, my uncle woke up in the morning to find his wife dead beside him. She had died just like that in the night. So the Buddha encouraged us time and again to contemplate on impermanence because he knew that we human beings want to see things as permanent, as lasting, lasting forever, or at least for a long, long time. And this applies especially to the nice and pleasant things or experiences. To see impermanence on a gross level is easier than to perceive the changing nature of things on a more subtle level. For example, to see the changes that are taking place constantly in our body and mind. This is not so obvious at all and it only becomes apparent if we make the effort and look a bit closer. And our practice of meditation is a way of looking inside and trying to see what is actually there. And so it doesn't take very long until a yogi realizes all the changes that are taking place all the time from feeling cold, the body starts to turn hot, or a pleasurable feeling becomes a stabbing pain, or an exalted state of mind turns into worry and uh, anxiety. 
or a calm and peaceful mind um, suddenly turns into an angry, aversive mind. We all can relate to these kinds of experiences and so painfully become aware that none of these states are lasting forever. As long as they are pleasant, we want them to go on. But when they are unpleasant, then we want them to go away as quickly as possible. Later, we become aware of even more minute changes within this bodily or mental phenomena. A painful sensation in the body, for example, doesn't stay the same all the time, but it becomes stronger and then slowly dis uh, disperses or it moves a little bit over here and then moves a little bit over there or it comes and goes in waves or from being quite a dispersed painful feeling it becomes smaller or it gathers in one little spot which then becomes a very um, sharp and penetrating painful sensation. And when we look even a bit more closely, we will find that this thing called pain is not only coming and going or changing places, but that actually one moment of pain is not the same as the next moment of pain. We start to see very momentary units of pain arising, disappearing, followed by the next unit of pain, which disappears again very quickly. So then we see that this thing called pain is just a series of very, very small and momentary units of so-called pain arising and disappearing with almost lightning speed. And so it's only with the eye of wisdom that we can penetrate into such um, subtle levels of impermanence. With our ordinary eyes, we couldn't perceive these small changes at all. And it is said that in a moment, in the moment it takes to blink our eyes or to snap our finger, in that moment millions of moments of pain have arisen and disappeared. With Anicjanupasana, the contemplation on impermanence, we have one way to work with in order to overcome pride and conceit. And thereby we can prevent that we land on the little island. The Buddha compared the proud person to a log which is floating in the river, but then is caught on the little island in the middle of the river. And as we have seen in the beginning of the talk, we get submerged under the water when there is desire, 
clinging or attachment. Out of compassion for numberless sentient beings, the Buddha gave this discourse called the parable of the log, so that we can put his advice into practice and thereby get carried all the way to the ocean of wisdom. Let's sit for a couple of minutes. May all of you not be submerged under the water, not land on a small island, but swiftly be carried down the river to the ocean of Nibbana. Now let's chant the sharing of blessings. Now let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration. Through the goodness that arises from my practice, may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world, may the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, 
guardian spirits of the earth and the Lord of death, may those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life. <clears throat> May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing. May all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth. May I have an upright mind <coughs> with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge. Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble Lord. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion be dispelled. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.